Good morning. You know, as I was uh, enjoying that part of the service as much as you all were, I was realizing, and I think this is correct, um, and John and Van, I'm thinking especially of Van, I'm just not sure how far back, but when you're in a church for 28 years, you have children that you have dedicated that you've also married. And uh, I won't be around to marry any of these, but, uh, <clears throat> but what, a, what a joy. Just the gift, the gifts that God gives, and these are some of the most precious gifts, most valuable gifts. You know, take everything else away, but boy, when he gives us the blessings of sons and daughters, may our quivers be full. <clears throat> And then on the other end of the spectrum, the other thought that I had as we were celebrating birth and new life, some of us during the 9 o'clock hour uh, had a, uh, a special service on the far end of the property to sprinkle the ashes of a, a, a dear, dear saint who was a part of our church family. Viola Bolden was a part of our church family for several years, and she loved West Hills even though the last couple of years. She wasn't able to be here because of her mobility issues. And, but part of her request um, as, as, as a way of sort of recognizing the legacy of this church in her life and in her daughter's life, Darlene, was for some of her ashes to be sprinkled on the church property. And so several of us went out and had a, a service. And so that's, that's the spectrum of the Christian life, is it not? From, from birth to death to life beyond with the Lord in heaven. So praise God for the church. And uh, we love God's church. And so we celebrate that today. We are studying, if you are uh, with us this morning as a grandparent or family member or or just first-time attender, we're working our way through Peter's second epistle, 2 Peter. And this morning we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. I'd like for you to stand, if you're able, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Let me read, and you can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Lord, we know in your word from Hebrews 4, you've said that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living. We thank you that it is active. This morning, Lord, we need to hear from you. We pray that the word of God would pierce our hearts, search our hearts, the intentions of our hearts, our thoughts, and transform us. May we become more and more like Jesus. We pray in his name. God's people agreed by saying, amen. Please be seated. You all who are guests this morning, um, you're just in for a great treat this morning. This, you've heard of the Hard Rock Cafe. We're going to be dealing with some hard rock theology this morning. Um, I trust that it will be encouraging to you. It may cause you to scratch your head. I hope it causes you to search the scriptures, to study more. We're going to be talking about being diligent this morning. And uh, if we could come away from this with your desire to be even more diligent in the Scriptures, then that would, be, that would be worth it all. Let me just remind you what we're looking at in 2 Peter. This is the Apostles' second letter to Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, various, uh, various regions of that part of the world. And the Lord has shown to him at this point in his life that he doesn't have much longer to live. Whether it was in a dream or a vision, the Lord had made it clear to him that his time on earth would be coming to an end fairly soon. He says in verse 14, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And so it's like being told that you have six months to live. And what are you going to do with those six months? Um, You know, oftentimes we, we naturally, there is shock and dismay when either we or someone we love is given a prognosis of a short amount of time to live. We've had that happen several times in our church family over the years. Even now, I have a dear pastor friend in Chicago that I'll be spending some time with in a couple of weeks who's been diagnosed with cancer and has been given a a pretty bleak prognosis. And we're looking forward to some, some very rich, meaningful, probably tender, probably teary, but also days filled with laughter and joy as we get together. But what I've observed over the years, having watched several faithful followers of Jesus, men and women who loved the Lord, receiving that kind of news is that they, they lived their lives from that time forward with a considerable degree of purposefulness and, and, and intentionality and earnestness, wanting to make as much of those weeks or months as they possibly could. And then also in those followers of Jesus, men and women who loved the Lord so deeply, there was also a great sense of peace in knowing that they would soon be going home. In some way, that's what's happening with Peter here. I'm I'm sure that he was filled with a great sense of peace and joy, but also a great desire to do everything he possibly could in the amount of time he had left to strengthen the believers whom he loved in Asia Minor. And so he writes this second letter, and essentially that's what he's doing. Uh, He he wants to do all that he can. We're going to run into the phrase, make every effort. He's told them to make every effort. He's, He's saying, I will make every effort on my part to make sure that when I'm gone, you'll still be able to remember all these things that I believe are so important for you. 
What Peter says in 10 through 15 really serves to add considerable emphasis to what we looked at last week in verses 5 through 9. And so I want to share with you four major takeaways that I see coming from these verses. The first is simply this, the forceful call for diligence on the part of believers. Peter, Peter issues a forceful call for being diligent with our faith. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Therefore, and you always ask the question, whenever you see the word therefore, ask what is therefore, therefore? Well, it is in light of what he has said before. All that he has said thus far, that we have a faith, we've obtained a faith of equal standing with other believers throughout history, that we've been given everything we need for living a godly life by a gracious God, including all of God's promises, then instructing us to supplement our faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Therefore, in light of all of that, therefore, brothers, Adelphoi, sometimes the context means just men. Here it means men and women. Therefore, brothers and sisters in God's family, be all the more diligent. Be rigorous. Be careful. Be thorough. Be earnest. Go hard at it. Give it all you've got. I would encourage you to think about your own lives. In what areas of your life are you diligent today? Some of you are diligent in your studies. Our Wash U crowd, they have been diligent in their studies, as well as others of you. I have a brother who, I'm not sure if they're here today, Kyle Barty has been diligent preparing and studying for all these various exams uh, that he is been working on over the last several years. Some of you, that's, that's where you're diligent. In others, maybe it's your exercise routines. You practice diligence. Some of you are diligent in balancing your checkbook, down to the penny. Some of you are diligent in keeping a clean house and watching what you eat. As followers of Jesus, living in a world that is under the control of the Prince of Darkness, called to belong to Jesus Christ, Having been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his, the son he loves, Peter says, you should be all the more diligent with your faith. Now, it feels to me as if there is a word of commendation tucked into what Peter says there. He says, it's as if he is saying, you've been diligent. I know that. In the midst of persecution and hardship, you've persevered. I'm so proud of you guys. You've done so well in the midst of all that you've faced. But now, please, I'm calling you to even greater diligence. Accelerate it more. Give it more of your attention, more of your effort. You see, diligence is called forth from God's people all throughout Scripture. Old Testament, the people of Israel were called to lives of diligence. Deuteronomy 4, 9, take care, keep your soul diligently. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Psalm 119, you have commanded your precepts to be kept 
diligently. Now, unfortunately for some, instead of diligence, you find negligence. You find a disregard. You find a a laxity and inattentiveness to one's faith. You're too busy doing the other things that are so phenomenally important. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. We are consumed with the urgent, and we give our diligence to that. And in the process, we become negligent of taking care of our faith. As if believing that one's faith somehow will take care of itself. That it was enough to merely believe in Jesus when you were 10 years old. That everything is fine after that point. All the while ignoring the myriad of warnings and calls found throughout the Bible to the contrary. That you should do everything you can to supplement your faith. To strengthen your faith, to grow your faith, grow in the grace and knowledge of your Savior, the Scriptures say. Put on the full armor of God that you might take your stand, and having done all to stand. The question from this first takeaway is simply this, how is your diligence these days? It's a question coming from a loving Heavenly Father who wants the very best for His sons and daughters. Knowing the world in which we live. Do you understand that the triad of opponents to your faith, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are all diligent in their efforts to dissuade you from this? The second takeaway is the extreme importance of assurance. And this is where we get into some hard rock theology. Be all the more diligent, verse 10, to confirm your calling and election. So to confirm is to certify, to establish the truthfulness or the correctness of something that you already know or you suspect to be the case. It can be as simple as receiving the confirmation that your Amazon order has shipped. Or this phone call is to confirm that you have an appointment with the dentist this Friday at 8 o'clock in the morning. All the way to receiving the confirmation from blood work that your child has leukemia. Things being confirmed to us. The correctness, to establish the correctness or truth of something that you already know or you suspect may be the case. Now, the confirmation that Peter is referring to here is of eternal consequence. The confirmation of one's calling and election, and thus the confirmation of one's salvation. Now, in talking about calling and election, we're dealing with some wonderful, amazingly wonderful, as I hope you will, if you don't already feel and believe that in your heart, I hope that one day you will, And at the same time, some hard-to-fully-comprehend biblical truths and teachings. Let me just remind you all, what I have to remind myself from time to time, we have finite minds. Our ability to completely comprehend how all of the activities of God all work is clearly limited. We must take God at His word, and we must rejoice in His word, even if we can't figure it all out. 
And so in light of this, when we're talking about things like calling and election, a word like predestination in Ephesians, we should never attempt to twist scriptures to make them say what we think they should say. Rather, allow God's word to be just that, the word of God and not the word of man. Friends, there should be some things about how God works out his eternal purpose that should lie beyond our ability to fully understand. Wouldn't you not agree with that? If we can figure it all out, then it would be very, very man-made. Our salvation is not something that was developed by a team of 50 highly intelligent people in the world all gathered together who were given the assignment, come up with a plan of salvation. This is God's doing. This is God's work, and so we should expect some things that will go take, force us to go way beyond our ability to put it into a nice, neat framework and box. We're talking about God, and God's ways are perfect. Now, let me give you a couple definitions of the two words in this verse, calling and election. I'll put them up on the screen. I take them from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which I've found over the years to be a very reliable defining source of some of the harder terms of our faith. When when you see the word calling in the Scriptures, it is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which He, God the Father, summons people to Himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. Now, there are other verses we'll put up on the screen that describe more fully what this calling includes. The Bible says that you have been called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus, our Lord. God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. We have been called to be saints, people set apart to be holy. God has called you to peace, called you to freedom. God has not called us for impurity, but has called us in holiness. Now, you look at that list, and one of the takeaways that I get from that list is these all indicate we're not talking about a powerless, merely human calling. This is of a different kind. This is the Lord of the universe summoning a person to himself, and this is a calling that has such power that it brings about the response that it asks for in people's hearts. Understand, there is the external call of the preacher. There is the external call of the pastor, the evangelist, the youth leader, the camp counselor, or just the friend who shares the gospel with another friend. The external call is necessary. The verbal call is necessary. People need to hear the gospel being proclaimed. A person who is not saved needs to hear that they have a massive sin problem that needs to be addressed. They need to hear that their sin separates them from a holy God. They need to hear that God in his love sent his son to bear the punishment for those sins on the cross. They need to hear that he died and was raised from the dead. They need to hear that they need to repent of their sins and trust in Christ to save them and follow him as their Lord. That's all a part of the external call that goes forth. But the external call does not guarantee a response. 
The external call will fall on deaf ears and hardened hearts apart from the effectual internal call of God upon that person. The call of God is effective. It brings about and guarantees what it seeks to achieve. And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 5, For we know, brothers, loved by the Lord. Next verse, Steve. I think. Is it not up there? Sorry? Okay, listen. <laughs> For we know, brothers, 1 Thessalonians 1.5, we know this. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You say, how do you know this? Because our gospel, the gospel we proclaim, the gospel we preached, came to you not only in word, but also it came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction. You see, it, it came, the word that was preached came to some of the people in Thessalonica only in word. No power, no conviction of sin, nothing, no new life, no conversion. And so you see, when the effectual, effective call of God comes to a person, it doesn't just come in word only. It comes in the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. It comes with full conviction of one's sinfulness before a holy God and the great need for repentance and trust and faith. You see the difference? The external call, the internal call. And friends, you must understand that no one would ever come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved apart from that internal, effectual call of God guaranteeing the intended response. You can reject the external call. A person cannot walk away unmoved by the effectual call of God. And you should praise God for that. You should praise God for that. Second term, election. Let me give you the definition. This is Theology 400 here. An act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Let me give you a couple of key passages. Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. A lot of us love that verse. It's in this context. He goes on, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, this is all about what God has done, both in eternity past and in space and time, in order to save a people for himself. Out of all of humanity, God is on a mission to make a people for himself, and this is how he's getting it done. 
Those who are called according to his eternal purpose, Paul says, are those whom he foreknew. Say, well, what's foreknowledge? Foreknowledge is not general knowledge. Foreknowledge is not omniscience. God is omniscient. God knows all things. That's not foreknowledge. Foreknowledge refers to God having a personal, relational knowledge with those who would become his people even before they were born. Now, if that doesn't blow your mind, nothing will. So he says, for example, to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. This is a very personal knowledge that involves a saving relationship by God with those whom he will in time call to himself. You see, the closest thing I was trying to think of, is there anything that comes even remotely close to understanding, understanding this? The closest thing I could think of is sometimes you'll read accounts or hear stories. Maybe there are some stories of some of you in this room where a man, we'll, we'll go from the man's perspective because that's what I am. Um, a man sees a woman across the room or in his college class or, you know, at work, and he says, someday I'm going to marry her. And she hasn't even met him yet. And somebody says, you've, you've never, you haven't even met her. He says, I know, I know. But someday she's going to be my wife. Now that analogy obviously breaks down but that's the closest that I could get to trying to think of how does this work, God? And, and, and God says, out of all of humanity, someday, someday, I'm going to be married to her and him and him and her and her and her and him and her and him. Someday they're going to be my people because I'm going to guarantee that I have a people for my own possession who will delight in me and be for my glory for all eternity. The second passage, Ephesians 1, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. When did you do this, God? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined for us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, all of this to the praise of his glorious grace with which that grace he has blessed us in the beloved, his son, the Lord Jesus. Now let me give you... This next slide will just kind of show you the key elements of salvation that are laid out in the scriptures. And these are, this is generally seen in the order in which these things occur according to God's purpose. Okay? The first on the list is election. This is God's choice of planning to save some people. And then there's that call, the effectual call of God that is materialized through the external call, takes shape through the external call of the gospel. 
leading to regeneration. Someone is born again. They go from, from not having spiritual life to you must be born again. Conversion. That includes faith, believing, and repentance, turning from sins. Justification, being declared by God to have a right standing before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone. Adoption, membership in God's family, a member of God's household, one of God's children. Sanctification, right conduct. Now he takes this child, this new child of his, he says, now I want to make you more like my son Jesus. Sanctification. Right conduct, right behavior, right thoughts, right attitudes. Perseverance, doing that for the long haul. As I said last week, a long obedience in the same direction. Perseverance. Death in this life, going to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then lastly, glorification, receiving a resurrection body. Now what's interesting to me as you look at that list, is that Peter is taking these believers, the Holy Spirit is taking us, keep thinking with me here, folks. He's taking us all the way back to number one and number two. He doesn't say to confirm your adoption. He doesn't say to confirm your justification or your conversion. No, he says what you need to do is confirm your election and calling. You say, well, Gary, what's he saying? Well, I, I think he's saying, make absolutely certain that you're saved. Confirm that God has called you and that you have responded to that effectual call. Confirm that it wasn't just something that you kind of mustered up on your own strength and ideas of merit and being meritorious and earning salvation or being religious enough, or being baptized when you're a baby, or going forward in an altar call, or raising your hand, or praying with mom or dad when you were six years old. No, confirm that this is the real deal in your life. Let the proof of the reality of your calling and your election be seen in a life that exhibits the links in the chain that we looked at last week. Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with godly knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. If you have these qualities, Peter says, therein lies the evidence of your calling and your election. You've heard the expression, the proof is in the pudding. I don't know where that expression came from. I just like to eat pudding. I don't look for proof in it. The proof is in the pudding. Here he's saying the proof is in the living. The proof is in the living. Or the illustration I've used in times past is as to whether or not there is a fire burning in the fireplace of a, of a cabin out in the woods. If you can't be inside the house to see if whether, whether or not there's a fire in the fireplace, you can stand outside and see the smoke rising from the chimney. If I see smoke rising from the chimney, I know that there must be a fire in the fireplace. If you can see the smoke of these qualities coming from your life, virtue, 
godliness, brotherly affection, love, steadfastness. If that's the smoke coming from your life, Peter says, I know that there's a fire burning in the fireplace. Now, let me just give a word of caution here. Number one, God knows those who are his. God knows those who are his. My word of caution would be this, with regard to assurance of salvation. Be very careful, and I say this probably especially to parents. Be very careful and very cautious in giving someone an assurance of their salvation apart from seeing evidence of new life in Christ. Evidence of conviction of sin. Evidence of desiring to know and love the Lord. Evidence of sanctification. You see, if the things that Peter writes about here are missing from a person's life, I do not believe you have grounds for giving someone assurance. False assurance is giving assurance in the absence of any of these qualities. False assurance is an assurance based upon an external act of the person rather than evidence of an internal work of God. Well, when he was six years old, he did this. Yes, but what did God do in his life? Was God doing something when he was six years old? If God was doing something when he was six, you, will, you should be able to see something of it when he's 16 and 26 and 36. Friends, false assurance provides false hope. False assurance can numb a person to the future proddings of God's spirit in, down the road when they are assuming that all is well with their soul when in reality their soul may be in great peril. No, what you want for them. And I, I say that with compassion and tenderness because I get it. I totally get it that as a parent or a grandparent or someone of someone you love and, and someone says, well, do they know the Lord? And, and your immediate says, oh, yes, of course they do. What's that based upon? I get it because I, I would want to, I wish I could say the exact same thing for some of my family members. Not in our immediate family, but my extended family but I can't. I had a dear new sister that I met this morning come up to me and told me her story and asked me, she said, I just need to know, is he in heaven? And with all of the gentleness and love based upon everything that she told me, I had to say, all I can tell you is that from the scriptures, it does not sound as if this person knew the Lord. And she said, that's pretty much what I knew all along. I just needed to have it confirmed. You see, friends, what you want for those you love is what Fanny Crosby expressed in perhaps her most famous hymn, Blessed Assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, and all the way through saying, yes, 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 washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior, 
all the day long. And you look at the one you love and you say, that's what I want for them. I want them to have that blessed assurance. Not some pretend assurance that gives false hope. Got to keep moving. Number three, the third takeaway is the promise that comes with perseverance from Peter. If you practice these qualities, that's the condition. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The phrase, these qualities, he repeats that four times in this first chapter, verse 8, 9, 10, and 12. Those are the qualities we looked at last week. And then he says, you will never fall. You say, wow, that is, that is a confident statement on the part of Peter. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Seriously, Peter? It's as if, I think it's as if Peter's saying, well, yeah, if I see that much smoke coming out of the chimney, yeah, I've got a 99.9% chance of believing that you will never fall. I think Peter was thinking back a few years to when he fell. I think Peter's thinking back and thinking, what if I had been steadfast? What if I had practiced some self-control with my fears when I denied the Lord? What if I had reminded myself of the words that our Lord shared with us many times that he would be killed but would be raised on the... What if, what if, what if I had done these things that I am now asking these people to do? I have to believe that that was probably the darkest day of Peter's life as he thought about having abandoned the Lord. And friends, he didn't want that to happen to these folks. I don't want what happened to me to happen to you. I don't want you to ever have a day like that in your life. And so he says, if you practice these qualities, brothers and sisters, you'll never fall. And then the fourth takeaway is the vital role of remembrance. And by the way, friends, this is one of the reasons why I preach, why Pastor Will preaches. This is one of the reasons why you have Bible teachers every week to remind, to remind, to remind, to remind, to remind. I intend always, Peter says, to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, you know, he, he could envision people saying, I already know that, Peter. I know you know that, but I'm going to tell you again. You've heard this sermon before? I know you've heard this sermon before. I'm going to preach it again. I know that you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right. As long as I'm in this body, I've got a few more months, maybe a year, a couple years to live, to stir you up. How? By way of reminder. I'll make every effort to do this. So that when I'm gone, you'll be able to recall... Peter wants to basically pound this stuff into their heads so effectively that they will never forget it. You will never forget what I told you in the final months of my life. So the implication from what he says here that I see is this. You and I have a natural inclination to forget the most important things in life. Of course, none of you are forgetful, right? You all have steel traps. Remind me again what I was supposed to pick up at the store. Remind me again what your name is. Remind me again when is Lucy's birthday. I can't remember where I set my keys. I can't remember what chapter I left off with in my Bible reading. I had that verse memorized once, 
but I forget how it goes. You see, it's dealing with the reality. Peter's just dealing with the reality that while the human brain is phenomenal in being able to store tons of information, sometimes it just needs to be given a little nudge. It's not just the brain, friends. It's also, and maybe especially the heart and the will that should never forget. I might remember here, but Peter says, boy, I really want you to remember here. Deuteronomy 6, take care lest you forget the Lord. What a somber statement. Take care lest you forget the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, we forget the Lord when we feel as if we've got everything under control. We forget the Lord when pursuing Him gets in the way of pursuing other things. We forget the Lord when we lose our first love. We forget the Lord when we grow lazy apathetic, complacent, negligent with our faith. We forget God when we don't prioritize spending time with Him every day over all other things. We forget the Lord when we become materialists in a materialistic society. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. the tendency to forget. Let me wrap it up. Peter is simply saying this. Last week, make every effort to supplement your faith. This week, be all the more diligent to do this, to confirm your calling and your election. See, God's word lovingly but firmly warns us against being lazy in our faith, drifting away from the one who bought us the one who gave his life for us, taking him for granted. It encourages us to fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of eternal life, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, run with perseverance the race set before you, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, advance and grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in this way, you will reassure your heart and will make confidently firm that you indeed have been called to share in God's glory and excellence. Amen. Did you all survive? Let's pray together. This morning, right now, the Spirit of God may very well indeed be issuing a call to some who are here. He may be speaking to your heart saying, it's time. It's time. I'm calling you to myself. I sent my son to die for your sins. I'm calling you to believe. I'm calling you to trust me.
dear friend, hear the call of God. Hear the call of God. Would you not receive him today? The Bible says to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. To have your sins forgiven, your slate washed clean, all of your sins taken care of by the blood of the cross. Receive Jesus. Trust in him today. Simply say from your heart, Oh God, I hear your call today. I give my life to you because your son gave his life for me. I confess that I am a sinner. I confess that I have a problem. And I'm so glad that you provided the remedy. Today, today is my day. Today is my birth day. I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. I believe in you. Make me a child of your own. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would love for you to shake my hand when you leave today. Let me know. Let me know that you heard the call of God today. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love your word here at West Hills. We trust that we've heard from you today. Thank you for Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for the assurance that many in this room have that you provide. There is indeed smoke coming from the chimney of many lives. And Lord, we would pray for those whom we wish there was assurance of salvation. Oh God, we grieve for them. Bring them to yourself in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in conviction. All to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in the strong name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ.